Stringer here. Ali here. And time to catch the roundabout. You know, I'm going to call the police on you. Oh, not that police. Oh, the band police. Oh, the the band. The freaking band. <laughs> and, and, and the reason is because they connect to like so many cool things. And, you know, staying and all the other. We'll talk about that. Growing up. A fun, exciting band that I enjoyed immensely on a few different levels. And I, I, I love police. I love the police. And I uh, I was lucky to see the reunion at the Mason Square Garden when they did that too. Lucky you, bro. It was great. There's a DVD from Argentina or something like that. It's, it's also great to have that as well. So, police, absolutely recommended. Three great musicians, three great musicians on their own, and three great musicians playing together as well. And for anybody that needs a, a name reference a refresher, Sting, well known by Sting, one name, Gordon Sumner, real name, um, Andy Summers on guitar, right? And then Stuart Copeland on drums and Sting doing the, the bass and the vocals. So this trio, if you read there, I've read um, their individual books and they're fascinating because so each one of them wrote each a book. Each one of them wrote a book. And oh, yeah, actually I saw a documentary uh, by Andy Summers. That was good, that, and I read his book. I read his his book. Um, so for everybody that knows, you know, Roxanne, Can't Stand Losing You, Every Breath You Take, all those, like, you know, Message in a Bottle, all the police songs you should know, what don't you know about the police? We'll try to, like, tell you some of it. Mm -hmm. So one thing is, out of the three members of the band, who's the oldest and who has the longest history? Andy, Andy Summers. Summers yeah. Andy Summers, as guitar player in England, played with uh, a lot of interesting people in the 1960s, such as The Animals, Eric Burden, mm -hmm. right? Um, Soft Machine. Well, Soft Machine, he did a brief stint with Soft Machine. He also was in that vanguard of knowing uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, exchanging guitar mm -hmm. stuff, and actually gave, uh, sold Eric Clapton the SG guitar that he mm -hmm. used in Cream. That's Andy Summers' guitar. So it really goes much, much, much deeper before and much deeper and he knew, than, uh, than the police. And he knew so. Robert Fripp in youth, um, you know, just just from the area. And if you read Andy Summers' book, which is called One Train Later, it's a nice read because you realize how he drifted in and out of almost opportunity. And almost opportunity hurts because you think something's going to take off and it doesn't. And there was a point where he became... Good enough at his instrument in London, where he was the man about town, getting called for sessions. He got called to do Mike Goldfield's live performance of oh, Tubular yes, Bells. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh -huh. And Sting that, that, saw that, that, it. That's, that's an amazing reference, yeah. actually. And Sting saw that's that. That's a great reference. <laughs> and you think about, like, so Andy Summers was 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 really, like, in different spots. With, and mm -hmm. even on a John Lord album, 
Let's not oh, leave yeah. that before I forget. And I don't mean before I forget. I mean before I forget yeah. by John Lord. Absolutely. Quintessential. Listen right. To it. Actually, exactly in eight days, I will receive LP, Japanese edition of that LP. Get the hell out of here. Yes. Are you serious? Yes. It's true. I'm going to need the liner it's notes very photographed. Important information. Everything. Yes. This is a big, big deal. Mm -hmm. But that thing I was like, Andy Summers is really honest in his book. Like when he had nothing going on, he'd go, uh, "Yeah, for these few years, I did nothing." And he and he met, yeah, he met his wife, whatever. But I, the thing I like about the title of his autobiography was, so Sting already being uh, kind of a you know jazz band and kind of trying to do his own thing. Yeah, he came gets from a very different kind of background. But could play, he could play heavy oh, yeah, stuff I mean, on the all, bass. All of them are amazing accomplished. Players, you know. And Stuart Copeland being the American in England with an ambitious plan to start his own band. He had previously worked with, what band do I want to say? Uh, who's the one with the with Dave Arbus? What do you call that band? Sanja, what's her name? He was a member of a band, of a progressive rock band. For Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Wikipedia people. Anyway, he, his brother, Miles Copeland, Ian Copeland, you know, in the music business, their father, right, being um, a big guy in MI5, so he was, uh, you know, Mr. Spymaster, um, very much, and, and Stuart Copeland in his book talks about being, being the son of a spy who actually knew Kim Philby. He played with Kim Philby's kids, Kim Philby being one of the biggest traders ever in international history. Betrayed England and then ran to Russia and then just kind of lived a pity, like pitiful drunk life. But Stuart Copeland saying, how would you know that when you were a kid? Our dads were friends drinking and life goes on. But in the, in the two brothers being in the business, Stuart Copeland, very excited about the music scene in England. He thought the punk scene was exciting. He's like, I'm making a band. Boom. Him and Sting talking. They have a guitar player, Henry, Henry Padovani. Um, Stu, uh, Andy Summers comes across as a possibility, but I think the title of the book for Andy Summers was, he goes, well, I did the audition, I, I, I kind of knew who Stuart Copeland was, I kind of ran into Sting, but I was on a train and I saw Stuart Copeland get on the train, and he goes, even though I wasn't going to get on it, he goes, I jumped on that train. And when I got on that train, I started rapping with uh, Stuart Copeland. He goes, if I didn't do that, if I didn't jump on that train, I don't think history would have unfolded. <laughs> Naming your book after that's kind of awesome, right? Oh man, and uh, and uh, I love the movie actually. The, the movie, the commentary about him, he gets very personal about like his story and can't stand and, losing and, you. And, and there yeah, are so good. many great uh, photos there. I mean, he's a photographer. He's uh, he's a very good uh, photographer actually. Hung out with John Belushi. Lots of, <laughs> <laughs> lots of uh, interesting documents from these uh, tours. The Similar to Tony Levin, the bassist. Yes. And, uh, uh, who you know? Who also music. plays on a Tony Levin album? Yes. I mean, on, a, on an Andy Summers yeah. album, Tony yeah. Levin plays on. These are the connections. Song X, song Like-minded like people connect. You know? Yeah. So not a shock for those guys to be hanging, making yeah. an album. And then he had some solo albums. I mean, after like, he had really uh, X Y Z. Uh, well, is that the name? So uh, X Y Z and and then Earth and the Sky, which I, really I saw enjoyed. the I saw the X Y Z tour. What do you think of that? David Henschel, who produced the most progressive Genesis, right, in the, mm -hmm. like, Trick of the he produced this album for Andy Summers where, it, it was interesting because Andy Summers was kind of singing, he was singing, mm -hmm. and it was kind of somewhere between pop and 
just more interesting guitar-centric music. So I went and saw the tour. I just said, hey, let's go see Andy Summers. Mm -hmm. While I enjoyed it, all of a sudden at the end, of course, obligatorily-wise, he's like, you know what? I'm going to sing Roxanne, and I'm going to sing I Can't Stand Losing You. Should he have? Well, that's a matter of opinion. Is it, uh, you know, in a, in a level of uh, our hero, Steve Howe? Well, I would say, so you're saying putting the two of them in a singing contest? I don't. I'm I'm gonna be kind and 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 not really weigh in with a full answer, but I mean Steve. All right, so wait, wait. So Steve Howe did sing Roundabout on that Monday TV yeah. show, on that. So so he already committed. He the, 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 so he committed. He went all the way. So when you see Andy Summers going, and all this guilt will be on your head, I can't stand. Like you're sitting there going, oh what? Wow, he's really doing that. And when he does Roxanne, I mean he's literally up there, and 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 and. Roxanne! And I'm like, wow, he just doesn't care. He doesn't care he's not Sting. He's like, I'm just doing the songs. You guys want to hear them anyway, so I'm doing them. And he survived the night. Uh, yeah. Maybe I, I, I'd like to. I was, you know. Enjoy that. I'm okay with it. But then the albums he made where he drifted into um, the jazz albums he made were very good. Like uh, mm -hmm. the tribute to Thelonious Monk, Green Chimneys. And then uh, I think it's Peggy's Blue Skylight, the Charles Mingus tribute. And then Song X was kind of a smattering of all these other... And then he did uh, he did a, a duo albums with John Etheridge from Soft Machine, mm -hmm. two of them, and they, they were more... One of them lead at least towards more Brazilian or mm -hmm. exotic. It's, it's, it's such a good combination. And there was a band that never got released, but there was floating around, because I know I heard it, with Jack Bruce and mm -hmm. Andy Summers in the early parts of the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And it sounded good. I mean, I'm a Jack Bruce nut, so it wasn't hard for me to be happy about it. And hearing Andy Summers play, it's just one of those things that never really went um, tons far. But he kept himself busy with those albums and just reminiscing about the police and book. And then if you have, yes. we'll save the big guy for last thing, but Stuart Copeland yeah, as drummer. Stanley Clark and like he did he, he, that, that band, he did Animal Logic with uh, yeah. Stanley Clark. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Like two albums, I think. Two albums, Deborah Holland, even Steve Howe mm -hmm. showing up on the album. Soundtracks from drummers and things like that were not, like in the 80s, was more a bigger thing. So the movie Rumblefish, big movie um, that he did the music for, he did the music for a TV show called The Equalizer. Mm -hmm. And he kind of got taken with that, and he was satisfied doing that. Besides the band Animal Logic, um, he would show up on various things. He made the, uh, Mr. Oysterhead, he made back in like 2000, 2001 which was with Les Claypool, right? Mm -hmm. And then also no with uh, the dude from Fish. Um, what's the Trey Anastasio? That oh. was an interesting trio project. And then there was, uh, you know, other places he would kind of spend his time in with different bands. And the last thing he did uh, was the quartet with uh, Adrian Ballou, mm -hmm. uh, the gentleman from Primaria Forneri Morconi, and then also Mark King from Level 42, and the name escapes me, but hey, I'm trying to stay away from the Wikipedia on the podcast. <laughs> but that quartet idea was more of a playing, or, you know, it seemed like a playing around thing. Maybe it'll do something else. So Stuart Copeland, always interesting. But before we get to the big guy, if you want to call him Sting, we say, if you say, uh, who, who was the guy who was the jerk in the police or who was the guy that doesn't sound cool? People think it's Sting. It's not Sting. Stuart oh, Copeland. They, they all had their Stuart own Copeland always said the said the said the thing. He would say something, or upset the apple cart with things that. If you read his book, you go, wait a minute, this guy's not grateful. What? 
<laughs> he, he's not. So if you read all three, like Sting is just Sting. Sting is yeah. like, hey, I can't help it. I, I got this cool look. I play bass. I know how to sing. I know how to play multiple instruments. Gee, I just can't help it. And so the fact that the focus on him and the ability for him to have a solo career was so quickly matured, it's not his fault, mm -hmm. but he plays, he had to play to the fact that it's Stuart Copeland's band. He could have been out of that band much sooner, but I think as a trio, they had a good energy and everybody's eyes were on staying initially, not just being in the police, but I would say the next visible thing that people noticed was him in the movie Quadrophenia mm -hmm. of the Who, yeah, the Who. Mm -hmm. and he was, uh, he, he was uh, you know, literally like in the punk yeah. meet the Godfather. Yeah. He has his blonde hair. Mm -hmm. He's playing the role out where you look at him and go, oh wow, he looks interesting. And then you see him carrying the baggage in the uh, bellboy section of the movie. But, you know, he showed up in movies. Uh, like we said, Brimstone Treacle in another episode. He also did Dune, uh, Bride, was it Bride's Head Groom or whatever it is. And he, mm -hmm. and he, and he made, um, he was just in different things besides uh, the Murder in the Building yeah. series where he, yeah, 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 a little comical about, role. I mean, you know how I look at him, you know, I think it's such a unique position. And, and I love his solo stuff. I love, I love the police, you know. But the thing about him, He's when I think about all the musicians that I like, and he's probably the one that reached that like highest pop star level that he crossed over to so many genres and crossed over to housewives as well. I mean, the one that is that will really be accepted by everyone. But I think his ability as a composer and a player, musician all around, I think uh, there's never been such a pop star. With like so with such a capability, you know. Not in that way. Yeah, and, and he still can cross to different genres, or, or like really successfully and tastefully. He's he's really tasteful songwriter, you know. That's when he the, formed his first solo group, depends on who you hung out with and what you were reading and what you were thinking about. And although I was, I had my my progressive rock, my fusion, my jazz, my this, my that, my my hard rock. When he formed that band with Omar Hakim, Daryl Jones, um, Branford Marsalis, and Kenny Kirkland, I, I had an idea about Weather Report pretty well at that point, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa you, you, got, you got Weather Report guys in your band? What the hell, bro? I'm paying attention. You got my attention. And the only thing that I was annoyed with as a guy that was like playing bass and learning sting bass lines as a teenager, I'm like, what do you mean you're not playing bass? So I listen, Daryl Jones is great. So I listened, but I thought the the way the fact that he made that album and people were forced because I had guys in my high school going, Oh, what's he doing with a jazz group? So why? You don't notice the difference. You're not smart enough to notice the difference. That's the attitude I had when he when he played when they played Set Someone Free or A Fortress Around Your Heart, I'm like, like you can help tell the difference. Like like you even know. But Sting was it um if you watch that early documentary on mm -hmm. on it, um there's arguments between like Miles Copeland and the group because those guys are like, hey, mm -hmm. we're jazz guys. We want to get paid properly, you know, to perform and this and that. I, I, I saw one of those. Arguments. Right. It, it, it was actually funny when, when they were kind of uh, pushing string, is this thing, and kind of uh, at one point he said, you know what? Uh, I think you had a song that you wrote for one of the albums, and they listed the song that. Uh, I can't remember it now, you know, but it, it was, uh, the point was that, I mean, your song was never successful and all of my songs were successful. So I guess I, they were, I get the right to get 
whatever bigger percentage or whatever <laughs> whatever it is. I think they were ribbing. That's oh. a scene where they were probably ribbing him because they're like, oh look, rock guy just landed in jazz. Look, white Englishman thinks he knows everything, and he's kind of taking it in stride for a bit, even though he's paying them, which is always a weird relationship in business. You pull a bunch of guys. You pull them into this optimal position, and then they're knocking him. And on film, he's kind of going along with it. But then they have Miles Copeland go. Miles Copeland, just American business guy, like, all right, look, man, it's like, let's put it like this: you guys play the Madison Square Garden, Sting sick. Who's gonna come see you four guys? They're like, uh. He goes, okay. You get what I'm saying? One of you guys is sick. Sting's still playing. You think everybody still comes? Yeah, exactly. That's why he gets paid what he gets paid. And you know, you just look at the movie, like, whatever. And then when, when he made his second solo album, you know, he he he, he moved it more towards uh, not even so much jazz, but more towards a mainstream thing. But I don't want to ignore the biggest element in the room, which is the music of The Police. Yeah. The Police, the albums. Not many albums, but they all made a mark, you know, so. Post-punk, any extreme, and not fitting any extreme. And... Yeah. Just kind of, if it wasn't punk, and it wasn't reggae, and it wasn't pop, what was it? It was kind of like... I mean, identity-wise, it kind of uh, rode on, on the kind of uh, wave of punk, even though it wasn't punk. Because they all they, dyed their hair. And, 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 I mean, you talk about fashion, you, know, you right. talk about attitude, you know, that, that's the thing. Right. But, and, but the thing about these guys uh, was that they were uh, like virtuosos on their instruments. They right. were good songwriters, and uh, I mean, they kind of picked up that time in history, and uh, they started, and it uh, it all uh, worked out for them in that way. But definitely, not um, that stood out and still stands out, and stood out the test test of time. You know? And not without struggles, because so first album comes out, does good, still have to tour, still got to get in that van and drive around and do stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the second album. Second album is where I was just picking up on them. And my brother had the release of Regatta de Blanc in the U.S. Mm -hmm. They released it in two 10-inch vinyl edition. Uh -huh. So, you know, first I was like, wow. I think around that time that they were doing these tests for like... Yeah, they were doing all that. They, 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 they did a Ricky Lee Jones album from the same... It had a poster in it, too. I think it was kind of uh, some kind of... Uh, Good marketing, though. Good marketing. Commercial you, idea. Because you had, yeah, you had this, you made the album seem more important. Uh -huh. Look, two discs. And then you said, oh, look, a free poster. And I was fascinated because I didn't understand this use of, okay, Orlando's de Moore, Regatta de Blanc. They're just strange album titles in one sense, but white reggae is Regatta de Blanc, right? That's what it means. And then when you're listening to it, um, you could just tell it's moved a little bit further than the first album. And songs like Death Wish, um, Bring on the Night. These things that would move from straight rhythm to reggae, including um, you know, walking on the moon, is just a, a great oh, breakdown of oh, time. And when they play that live, that was that was amazing. I, mean, I made my bass teacher teach me the bass yeah. line because. And then there's those kind it. of drum fills <laughs> when, they, when they did the new uh, version, and uh, you can hear the recording on that uh, live in Argentina album. You know, the, it really right. gave Sir uh, Copeland like time to kind of build up that intro yep. with his percussive. Percussive melodic playing, it's a, it, it was amazing. I think one, one of the peaks for me of their entire career is like those live recordings from the reunion tour. I, that seemed like, a good, seemed like a good, good reunion stuff. tour. They made the, 
the the record company as they do their push A and M. Oh wow, we got something here. They really pushed them to make Zenyatta Mandata, the third album, fast, and they were they were able to crank out hits from that like that. There was some filler to some degree, but look at how look how lucky they were. How lucky they were talented, right? So don't stand so close to me. We got driven to tears. And when the world's running down, you have songs like the do 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 da 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 da. Voices in my head. They were playing on even rap station and stations that were not playing rock, which I found amazing. Like someone would tell me, "Oh, I know that song, Voices from what? Oh, WBLS." I'm like, "How's that possible?" But doesn't matter. Somebody pushed it through, and then I think that year. Um, I think this song was um, Behind My Camel won some kind of Grammy yeah, as an instrumental. That was, that was an instrumental. Canary, with, uh, uh, <laughs> but think about it. It won. Uh-huh. It won. I mean, get an award. So they made a movie, Police Around the World. They were pushing hard, like, hey, look, here's an album. Look, here's the police hanging out in other countries. And it, it kind of worked a bit where you were like, what is this? I need to, I need, I want to get in on this. I want to be part of this, checking this out. And then when they made the Ghost in the Machine album, there were some struggles that I had read about in at least all three of their books. And they get down to the Bahamas, and they run into that thing where, hey, we're a successful band, but we've got, you know, Sting was very harsh at times on like Andy Summers about something musical. And there was tension with Stuart Copeland at a point where George Martin was on the island, and Andy Summers ran into him walking around, and he's like talking with him, and he goes, Hey, is there any shot of like you doing our producing our album? And then he's like, no, nah. he goes, you guys have an identity. Like, like you don't need a George Martin to do your album. You, you guys can work it out and make your own thing. You don't need another stamp. He gave him an encouraging little chit chat. Mm-hmm. And so they make the Ghost in the Machine album, but there were elements to that album that they were kind of rehearsing. Uh, what was the name of that album? Eberhard Schroeder. Uh-huh. Was, right, so, I, I, I have one of his right, he, and he did uh, lots of collaboration with John Lord as well. Yeah, see, so that was the idea of uh-huh. hey, let's secretly test another direction with this guy mm-hmm. and see how it kind of sounds. And that's the stuff they bought into Ghost in the Machine. Mm-hmm. Songs like Darkness, the last song on the album, love it, always listen to it. Um, songs like Invisible, out of all the things they were doing, everyone's like, every little thing she does is magic. But they do a song like Invisible Sun, which relates to Northern Ireland, and the video gets banned in Northern Ireland. How's that happen? That's powerful. That's cool. It's like interesting that they they struck a nerve. Um, just musically, it creates a conversation. Hey, I'm into. The, I want to pay attention to the police. The uh, the initial song, if you listen to Spirits in the Material World, if you break that song down at a different speed, it's like a reggae song at another speed, like dang, 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 dang. Mm-hmm. They they made it work on another level, and they did things like Demolition Man, Too Much Information. They were really doing some cool stuff on the fourth album. It's almost like I even though I said Regatta the Blanc is the one that I like, I might like the fourth album as a as like wow, I like this because it's different I mean, than the others. Zendiata Mandata. Uh, how how would you pronounce it? Zendiata Mandata. That's the third one. Yeah. I mean, that's the one. That's the one that I really enjoyed when I was a kid. Uh, yes. A friend of mine had it, so we we had it. That one has do 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 da da da. Canary in a coal, coal and, mine. Yeah, Canary in a coal mine, which I learned was a real factor because Sting lived in Newcastle, England, where they had that. And I didn't know this, but my grandfather, step grandfather, mm-hmm. he was from Newcastle. And he mm-hmm. worked in a coal mine. So my mother knew what that meant right away. Mm-hmm. She goes, oh, they put the, the canary down there, and if it lives, great. There's no gas. Mm-hmm. If it dies, 
there's gas. So it's, I was like, oh, mom, I didn't know that. Very happy song when it's connected to me. <laughs> Canary in a coma. He, he, he has that, uh, that uh, talent to kind of uh, to uh, write about really dark topics and make them uh, sound very approachable to the regular listener, you know. He to, any, did. to any common listener, you know. I mean, maybe every breath you take becomes a wedding song and I think so the songs about kind of stalking and surveillance songs about right kind of become uh, taken uh-huh. out of now you I mentioned mean, the I mean, big, you, you mentioned the big one yeah. so yeah. look at the philosophy thing Ghost of the Machine is um, what's his name uh, is that Carl Young or is it no Carl Young was synchronicity I get confused Ghost of the Machine was a, a concept right I, listen go look it up you can see who wrote the who it was inspired from but synchronicity um, I think it's Carl Jung, like Jung, like J-U-N-G, right? That philosophy about whatever, synchronicity. But when you're, when you're at every step, every breath you take, you were kind of like, you know, it just sounded like a very slightly banal song, but it got played everywhere. Everywhere. Like more than any other police song, because it didn't have any odd time signatures, right? No, no speed up, slow down. And the video was perfectly timed to move more into main... Like, MTV was already cooking away, but that got put in overdrive on MTV. So it was priming you for King of Pain, wrapped around your finger, Synchronicity 2. I mean, that album had multiple hits, and Synchronicity was the album, ironically, that finished them off, too, just like those things happened. And that... I remember wrapped around your finger. That's the, that's the one with the amazing Stuart Copeland stuff as well also with a bass pop that no one notices beep <laughs> he does like one or two bass pops that mm-hmm. that uh, like if you're listening really carefully right you just go oh, and a cool video where he knocks down all the all the candles we're like wow that, that's cool he didn't burn anything down either but like the when they the big thing you'll you'll see in the book or anything that gig that they did at Shea Stadium mm-hmm. is a very very widely the end of the police basically because Playing that gig, and I know people that were there that said the problem they had with it was like the Beatles. They couldn't hear the band. Everybody was cheering, ah, sting! So people that I know that saw it said, no, great show, but couldn't really hear them that well because everybody was screaming every second. I mean, the, the thing about stadium shows in, in general, you know, but when it comes to shows like that, it's... I mean, can you imagine seeing, for example, the Beatles at the Shea Stadium? Do you think yeah. you, you would uh, hear any of the music there, you know, or... It was like probably like sunken screams, you know, and it was joy of thrill of being there, you know, probably. You know? That's right. These are these are the things about like stadium concerts and like big concerts in general. You, know? it's you want to just feel like I, I'm I want part to of something. Yeah, you know, I'm one of these people. And usually, you know, like what's interesting usually for concerts like that, especially now, like when the, it's became such a big industry, the the highest prices are for concerts like that. Yeah. So I mean, you know, you're gonna pay like thousand dollars to you know be to have a good seat a good seat if there are good seats you know at a place like that or yep. i mean or you're gonna you know go to a club and see one of them play their solo stuff or right i saw fifty dollars or hundred dollars prime scene plus you're gonna have dinner somewhere <laughs> so so you think about like experience of like being there to be just to be there yeah or to enjoy music fully and and really go for the for the music, uh, you know, element, which is the main element. Really, I saw like. Sting, I think, three times. So, 1991, I saw him at the Coliseum, 
Fred Soulcage's tour. Mm-hmm. Then I would see him later the summer at Jones Beach Theater, and I went mm-hmm. backstage thanks to my brother, and I was very close looking at Sting. He's looking at me drinking a cup of tea. And I'm like, Dad, don't say anything. He's waiting for you to say something so he can just say, get the hell away from me. At least that's how yeah, I saw it. We have to it. save that for our fandom episode. Right. Or, we or moved away gonna, from... Yeah, we're going to so share our... And then he played... Um, after, like, a few months... About a few months after 9-11, mm-hmm. in Bryant Park, there was a free concert where... It's so funny how, like, life works. Like, Bill Gates will be launching Windows uh, XP. Oh, and Sting's playing. And I'm like, what's the connection? Yeah, whatever. So, I remember, like like... I told the CEO of my company at the time, I go, hey, you know, I know a good morale boost. He's like, what? I go, Sting is playing. He goes, Stink? I go, no, Sting. <laughs> oh, I don't like Sting that much. I go, well, I don't care if you like him so much, but the rest of the company probably likes him. I go, look, lunch is generally people making up their own rules for the, for two hours, and you never get control of that chaos. They think he's playing at 12. <laughs> Why don't you just let people go... To the Sting concert. I, I loved seeing these concerts in, in the Anywhere? park. Anywhere? It was great. Along with, uh, they had one on the, they had this concert series at uh, the edge of Central Park, you know, I would go to. Like, yeah. The first year when I came to Bryant Park, they had this, this concert series. And, uh, wait, did they have another spot? Now you really look uh, back yeah. and, and miss it. Now you're like, oh man, that was great. Because now I, things are more I, I restricted. Think, yeah, I, I think that it will it will restart. It restarted like during the summer a little bit, but it's not, uh, you know, not, not enough, enough for my taste, man. I want I want like, but I'm not, I'm living in the past, I guess, right? Yeah. But like, but but yeah, Brian Park was cool, but also he had Christian McBride on bass. Yeah, he had like yeah. a full band, yeah. and and I'm like, you know, I'm like, okay, that's the access you have to musicians in New York. Yeah. Sting. Is, a, is either like, he's kind of a New Yorker at this point, uh, according to that, yeah. that show. He spends a lot of time here, but yeah, we, are, we, are we are spoiled. We are very spoiled, but we got to see. But in, in life, and uh, sorry, no, this, but the police are kind of like for a band that made five albums, they left a big footprint, and we are always interested in what Sting and these mm-hmm. other guys are doing. Totally. I, I mean, for me, just to, just to conclude that uh, New York concert story. I was so lucky to see him when he did the uh, orchestral tour at uh, oh, Metropolitan. Yeah, Metropolitan. Two thousand ten. Something like that, you know. Yeah. And amazing album. I mean, he did a, a live album in Berlin. Then he did yes, the yes. Symphonicity CD uh, of studio recordings. It was amazing. I mean, it's like probably one of my favorite CDs albums from the last twenty years in wow. general. You know that he really reinvented the songs and uh, the arrangements were great. He. He made it work really, and uh, live. I mean, it sounded great. I uh, when I saw that show, actually, I wasn't planning for a long time. I think it again the New York story. I was, uh, I think, on the day of the show, I checked. I think on Craigslist if somebody had an extra ticket, and I found a ticket right before the show. I went cool. to see it, and I was blown away. I mean, it was great. Kind of got into Stinks music deeper again, you know, after after that, and uh, yeah. And like he keeps releasing stuff. I mean, he just released a new yeah, album. Actually. It's good. And, I actually uh, heard it. Yeah, it's good. I, I enjoyed it. He did. Uh, I actually saw like two minutes of uh, uh, Rick Beato had uh, had him as a guest uh, with uh, a yeah. guitarist uh, Dominic. Uh, Dominic Miller, yeah. From uh, from his band, I, I saw two minutes. You know, like you see that kind of. Uh, there's uh, some egos going, you know, at some point. So I, I think j- just just the vibe of the of the talk. 
of the beginning I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't right. into, but it was good. Uh, he gave one good point about uh, like what inspires him uh, in music in general. He says, my teacher is a Johann Sebastian Bach. But <laughs> <laughs> what I love about music is unexpected turns. If there's nothing unexpected in the song, I'll get bored. I won't listen to it. You know? and, then, and, then and he's a master of that. When, yeah. when you think about it, really, yeah. I mean, his songs and little elements that he adds, and uh, and it's really uh, about less is more. He he's really he is he's a, less a great, is more. Uh, great composer. I mean, even kind of like the. The cheesiest moments, you know, are still uh, are still good music, you know. I mean, and he has all kinds of moments, but his uh, his moment his his moment on, on the on the Dire Straits song "Money for Nothing" is is unbelievably it's it's great. What I mean, a lucky place and, and, to be! And that's a great uh, great example of unexpected uh, thing in the song. And he he, he made it right. I mean, that kind of uh, that element really leaves a mark. And because he's such a great singer, and he delivers everything on like really high level that uh, on the it makes it work on the Phil Collins album No Jacket Required which I didn't dig so much when it came out there's this one beautiful song with Sting and Phil Collins which they perform live at Live Aid wonderful wonderful mm -hmm. uh, to uh, turn it off because they, they duet really well mm -hmm. so I was paying attention to that I go look if you don't, you don't dig Phil Collins in that album and you got an issue with Sting I go on that song they blend wonderfully and that mm -hmm. was a, a good time and I'm glad that Hey, I mean, talking about Phil Collins and go around like guesting on albums. Yeah, there's a great album that is very connected with this story, not connected at all. But uh, the singer from ABBA, Frida. Yes, she had the solo album. Something that, going on that Phil Collins produced. Excellent record, man. I bought that uh, recently. Uh, that, that LP. Uh, Daryl Sturman. I, 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 I knew that song before, but I uh, but I got the album and I just listened to it with very open ears. Great stuff, man. He so knows it's about that, connections, you know. His drums are same place so with the uh, Phil Collins. Phil Collins plays with Tommy Bowling. Uh, Frida plays with Phil Collins. Frida plays with John Lord from Deep Purple. She did. Uh, she was a guest on his uh, like one of his early two thousand albums. So like, there's everything's connected, you know. Yeah, All yeah, that great music. Six is, degrees, uh, bro. Yeah. Six degrees. It's a big thing. I hope everybody really dug our police episode and all the connections. Essential information. Essential. Essential. You know, I hope you discovered some new names and new musicians so. that you're listening to right now. And don't, not, don't listen to us. Don't waste your time. Listen to some music. Right. You do that. And uh, until next time, when we catch the roundabout.